0: Welcome to TechnoViews Podcasts, a new series of online interviews with major figures in the humanities and social sciences on topics at the intersection between technology, society and culture. My name is Gonzalo Santos. I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Hong Kong. The subject of today's podcast is China's environmental crisis. Our guest today is Professor Stephen Harrell, a major figure in China's environmental studies. Hi Steve, welcome to TechnoViews.
1: Good morning, Hassan. I'm glad to be here.
0: Let me introduce you before we start. Okay. Stephen Harrow is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at the University of Washington. Steve is one of the most well-known anthropologists of China. He has been doing empirical research in China and Taiwan for more than four decades. He has published many books and his research interests are broad, including family, kinship, fertility, aging and gender, as well as religion and ethnicity. In the late 80s and 90s, Steve started doing fieldwork with ethnic minority communities in Sichuan province. Working in Liangshan, Sichuan led Steve to develop a strong interest in environmental sustainability and community development. His focus on environment is strongly interdisciplinary and reflects his position at the University of Washington in between the Department of Anthropology, China Studies and Environmental and Forest Sciences. He's writing a new book that seeks to rewrite the history of modern and contemporary China from an ecological perspective. And that's why we're here today in Seattle to talk about um, China's environmental crisis. I mean, it's it's a big subject in the international media. Everybody's talking in one way or another about environmental issues in, in China. I mean, the most images that we get uh, in, on, on television are mostly images of industrial pollution. I mean, in large part, of course, because China has been going through a large-scale process of industrialization mm, in the right. last few decades. Um, but, of course, um, this, uh, this industrial pollution is not the only thing uh, about the current environmental crisis. This crisis has historical roots. And I know that you've been writing a little bit about those historical roots. Could you tell us a little bit about, about that, Steve?
1: Yeah, quite a bit. I, I've gone back basically to the beginning of the Qing dynasty in the mid-1600s.
0: In the mid-1600s. And so what did you find?
1: Well, I think this is a time when China entered a period of really accelerated growth. There obviously were a lot of environmental changes in old civilization, an intensive agricultural civilization, and so, for example, we know that lots of species disappeared that were known all over China two or three thousand years ago. Elephants, well, with elephants and agriculture don't mix very well. Tigers and deforestation don't mix very well. So these are old things, but the 1600s are the really the beginning of a intensive population explosion which sets in motion this, in the environmental degradation.
0: So how does it connect? you know population growth, environmental degradation, you know wh- wh- what are the linkages? What kinds of changes took place to allow that population growth in the 1600s onwards?
1: Well I think to allow it to grow there are two things. Uh, one was they imported crops from the new world. they imported corn and potatoes and sweet potatoes and those have high productivity and they're adaptable to places where uh, traditional crops such as rice and wheat and millet and sorghum uh, don't adapt very well. So that's one thing, they allow to expand farming through agricultural innovation. Uh, the other thing is that the Qing really uh, brought peace to the country and peace and prosperity and thus allowed population growth. I see. So.
0: Uh, so, in, and in addition to population growth, what other factors uh, come into play in, uh, you know, the the making of uh, China's environmental crisis in the Qing dynasty?
1: Well, I think the Qing was too good. The Qing administration, in a sense, was too good at regulating the environment. Uh, by which I mean, they established such a time of peace and prosperity, uh, beginning in the late 1600s, that they allowed the population to grow really fast and in order to do this they set up a system of infrastructure maintenance because it requires a lot of irrigation infrastructure a lot of flood control infrastructure a lot of transportation infrastructure and on the other hand they set up a, a system of efficient governance and distribution and storage of food so that if there were a natural disaster Uh, there was a flood or there was a drought, Uh, they had ways of providing uh, relief grain, they had ways of providing seed grain to farmers, Uh, they had ways of taking care of refugees. Uh, That uh, allowed, again, the population to grow at that time. Mm
0: -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about the time span of these transformations. I mean, how long, was there an intensification? I mean, you... You mentioned the 1600s uh, as a turning point but you know what is the time span of this population grows and these transformations in patterns of environmental exploitation well
1: of course uh, to one extent it's still going on uh what sort of 350 uh, years later but the the crucial time span is probably from the 1600s through the 1800s because during that period the population tripled about 150 million when the dynasty was founded in 1644 and it was at least 400 million maybe 450 million uh in the mid 1800s so that's a lot of people for the environment to absorb uh without putting too much pressure on on agricultural resources by which i mean land and and water and labor and animals and forests and all of these resources that go together to support people's livelihood Mm-hmm. You mentioned,
0: you know, wild animals like the elephants and tigers as some kind of, you know, markers of environmental transformation. Were there still elephants and tigers in the 1800s in China?
1: There, there are still wild elephants in China, in a tiny part of the very southern part of Yunnan in the southwest. Uh, there are still a few tigers, not very many, and most of those are in the north. But there's a very interesting recorded history in the Qing Dynasty because um, there's a progression that goes on in any particular place with regard to tigers. First, there's no attacks uh, on on people. The tigers are in the forest, the forest is vast, and uh, people and tigers don't have any encounters. Then there's a period at which Uh, there are all sorts of so-called man-eating tigers. They come and they attack people. And this is the period in which the people are expanding agriculture, they're cutting down the forest, they're logging, they're building roads, and the tigers are feeling more and more constricted uh, in their habitat, and they attack humans. And then there's a period uh, when there's no more attacks, uh, because there are no more tigers. Mm-hmm. and so this has been used by Bob Marx, an environmental historian, as a kind of an index of how much of the environment is being intensively used by humans and how little or a shrinking amount is sort of there as an ecological reserve that that produces clean water and wood and forest resources and prevents erosion and so forth. Mm-hmm. What
0: was the extent of environmental degradation during the Qing dynasty? I mean You've talked about, uh, you know, you used metaphors of intensification, uh, you, used, uh, you talked about population growth, you've talked about reduction of, you know, biodiversity using wild animals like the elephant and the tiger as indicators. But what was the extent of environmental degradation? Did it um, affect economic sustainability, for example? Eventually it did.
1: I mean, that's two questions, right? Yeah. The first is the the extent is probably best measured by the uh, degree of deforestation. Mm-hmm. The best estimates is about a quarter of the area of China was f- covered by forests in, uh, in the 1600s. And it's down to between 10 and 15% in the early 1900s and may have even gone lower uh, after that. So about half the forest in China uh, was converted to agricultural land. But of course, when you convert forest to agricultural land, it doesn't stay necessarily as agricultural land, particularly if it's in the mountains, because the, the soil can erode, the, the eroded soil is no good for farming, uh, and you get a kind of a kind of a wasteland, and then the soil that comes down and goes into the rivers. Sometimes the rivers change course because there's so much silt, can't get boats up there anymore. Um, in terms of the geographic extent, it's practically everywhere, but there are places, for example, well-endowed places in South China uh, that didn't experience as much degradation or as much mm-hmm. deforestation. In North China, it was almost complete. In the early, 19th century, early 20th century, provinces of Hebei, Shandong, and Hunan, in the heart of the North China agricultural area, they have as, as little as 2% of the land is covered by forests I see yes and what about
0: economic sustainability I mean one of the one of the major factors I suppose in the drive to expand uh, of the you know the Qing Dynasty government is of course this moral economy of provision provi- to, to provide food for the people right so to what extent did environmental degradation affect this capacity to provide food for the people
1: Oh, it affected a lot. Uh, for example, there are a lot of places where irrigation systems can no longer be maintained with the level of, agric- with the level of agricultural expansion. And in the area of the Central Plain, it's called the Jianghan Plain, which is now in, in Hubei Province, around the big city of Wuhan, uh, Wuhan and, and upriver from there, uh, there are areas where uh, agriculture was no longer sustainable because they couldn't control the floods. And couldn't control the floods, and so they converted from agriculture to fish ponds, uh, which, of course, can provide protein, but they don't really provide the calories necessary for the population. Mm-hmm. Well, that surely must have posed a predicament
0: to the Chinese government. And at the moment in which, you know, uh, new political forces were emerging, new players, Western uh, imperial powers as well, were present in China towards the late 19th century, uh, in, you know, more strongly. Uh, and how was that predicament resolved? I mean, which ways did Chinese political reformers found to develop new ways of providing food for the people?
1: Um, That's a really interesting question because in the, in the early 20th century, they, political reformers of all stripes, both more conventional conservative and, and the radical communist began putting a kind of faith in science and technology often science and technology that they saw as imported from the scientific quote scientifically advanced western countries and so they looked toward engineering and of course China has a long tradition of environmental engineering but they looked toward quantitative science and engineering as a way of being able to intensify production uh, by building more infrastructure by uh, introducing a, a higher yielding varieties of crops eventually, not until the PRC uh, introducing chemical fertilizer. and always looking toward these kind of in, these kind of scientific solutions of intensification, without necessarily taking into, ex, into consideration the idea that the environment has, sets its own limits for itself and mm. that human, ingenuity is not necessarily capable of overcoming the limits that are naturally there in the environment. I see. I suppose that Chairman Mao is a good source of, uh, of
0: you know, of, of idioms to kind of capture certain transformations, uh, certainly in political ideology of environmental governance. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking now he uh, is... Uh, Rending uh, Changtian, uh, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, man, humans must conquer heaven. Is that what it's related? I mean, is this related to the change that you were talking about, this invoking uh, engineering sciences and quantitative methods?
1: Yeah, I mean, he wasn't the first. You know, there, there's a, um, a a plaque on the coast of Taiwan, which of course was never ruled by the communists, It has that slogan, Rending Changtian, where they built some kind of coastal infrastructure, uh, sea wall. Um, But I I think that the the communists, uh, with their particular Marxist philosophy of development, and I want to make it clear that the Marxists from the beginning uh, were interested in development. I think there's this mistaken impression that it's kind of a trope that you get in the press, that, well, they were interested in revolution until Deng Xiaoping's reforms, and then they were interested in development. No, no, no. They were interested in revolution as a means of development, both social development, but also economic and physical uh, development. That's one of the big reasons why revolution. And they tended to turn toward a kind of idea that the key to prosperity is the organization of labor, um, uh, organization of human labor. You're going to reorganize it. Labor will no longer serve landlords or serve exploiting classes or serve capitalists, but it will serve the people. And in in this kind of context, they don't seem to really recognize, again, the idea that there are limits that the environment itself sets on exactly what humans can do to it.
0: Were communists ideologies of environmental governance in China modernist in the sense say that someone like james scott for example um you know gives to the term modernism i mean were they part of a larger modernist revolution oh absolutely around it absolutely
1: i i think that you know communism and capitalism in the 20th century are varieties of developmental modernist uh, ideology and if you can re-engineer society, which, of course, is what the communists are trying to do, the revolution, in order to make it more stable, in order to make it more just, uh, in order to make it more prosperous, if you, you can also re-engineer the natural environment in the same way. There's a quote from Chairman Mao uh, that uh, he gave sometime in the early 1940s saying that it's, it's the same way that we use social science, by which he meant Marxism-Leninism, uh, to... to uh, reform society, we also use natural science to reform the environment. Mm-hmm. And so when the communists took power, uh, they were very much um, almost worshipers of natural science, quantitative science, and applying this kind of science to increasing production and also to stabilizing the environment, because they, along with everybody else, realized that the environment was, was necessarily in bad shape.
0: Are there any good studies of the impact of these new modernist ideologies on environmental Well, of environmental course, Judy,
1: Judy Shapiro's book, uh, Mao's War Against Nature, has become a kind of a classic. Uh, it's interesting that when she first uh, wrote that book, she gave some talks in various places about the book, and there was a lot of resistance from Marxist environmental historians who had basically developed their whole discipline along the lines of what ruins the environment is capitalist greed and the pursuit of profit, and so socialists you know, they had an alternative. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there are some writings in China, particularly in the Cultural Revolution, you know, that explicitly say we don't have environmental problems in China. This is at a time when there's belching smokestacks and oil fields all over the place, and you know pulling down mountains in order to mine various kinds of ore. We don't have any environmental problems. We're not motivated by capitalist greed. We're motivated by improving the livelihoods of the, of the working people. And in such a uh, such a condition, environmental exploitation or environmental degradation is, is impossible. And this was an ideology that widely promoted uh, in China uh, during Mao's time.
0: But you are convinced that environmental degradation has intensified under Mao and so the question is, in which ways the pattern of um, environmental degradation was intensified when compared to the you know to the previous to the previous cycle of development, say in the late imperial period that you were talking about.
1: Earlier. Well, I think there's I think there's two things. One is that of course there's an explicit push toward a large scale push toward industrialization. Mm -hmm. Now this isn't the first push toward industrialization, the Qing Dynasty at the end was interested in particularly building um, railroads and and armaments and and this kind of industry and then of course we have the industry uh, in the Republican period, particularly light industry, textiles and so forth. But the real push toward a kind of Soviet-style massive steel and railroads and, and you know, trucks and and, and trains and and cement and all these big heavy industrial things, this really comes uh, during Mao's time. And this uh, adds the factor of pollution Mm -hmm. uh, to the factor of environmental degradation uh, that was there previously. So I I also think there's something else. We, the second factor, which is that uh, uh, under Mao, uh, there was this idea of no of no limits uh, to human ingenuity. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, in the Great Leap Forward, 1958, there's a very famous slogan, "Ren Renyo Do Da Dan, Diyo Do That is to say, uh, as big as the courage of the humanity is. Uh, that so big will be the produce of the earth. In other words, the only limit on uh, productivity, agricultural or industrial, is human ingenuity and human courage. Uh, There's no natural limits. Mm -hmm. So, during the earlier periods, uh, there was a real recognition uh, that uh, humanity and nature ought to be in harmony. Mm -hmm. But that kind of goes out the window. And it comes back to the slogan that you asked in your question uh, the slogan about people are destined to conquer the environment. Yes, I mean, it's. A, I suppose it's a common
0: theme throughout um, the global industrial revolution, Prometheus Unbound, right? That's the whole idea that we are, human beings are. Uh, human ingenuity has no limits. We yes. can overcome all kinds of uh, all kinds of problems. I suppose you are suggesting then that the Maoist period, in a way, is the most immediate precursor to the current uh, to the current environmental crisis. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I think so. In, in two ways. One is the the um, emphasis on growth, which is always there, and the other is the emphasis on or are they actually just a physical uh, industrial route uh, toward growth?
0: Yeah. Are you encountering, I mean, you are an anthropologist, so you've been doing fieldwork in China for many, for many decades now. And have you encountered, um, you know, directly in your fieldwork experiences, uh, situations of um, local populations engaging in various forms of environmental protests?
1: Directly, not so much. I mean, it was very common to talk about that. But there's certainly one that I can think about. And the population that I work on in the Yangshan Cool Mountains in southern Sichuan uh, is an agricultural population, actually agro-pastoral, also forestry, mm-hmm. and living at fairly low density. But there was a scheme to build a dam uh, in one of the valleys in order to provide water for nearby towns and the people in the village actually got out and and blocked the bulldozers that were taking the um, rocks, uh, the rock fill that was being used for the dam because it was hurting their agricultural lands.
0: So what time period are you talking about now? This
1: was about 2013-14. Is there any
0: evidence of environmental protest in China in the Maoist period?
1: No, uh, not that
0: I know of. I mean, earlier than, um, you know, the reform period. And, 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 and if not, why? I mean, I suppose it's an, it may seem a naive question, but I think it's an interesting question to ask. I mean, what Well,
1: I think one thing was, it, it was a, in many ways a repressive regime. Mm-hmm. And in other words, uh, you know, you protested, there was a great danger to protest. But I also think at the same time, that they, at least until the Cultural Revolution that uh, the communists instilled in people a kind of spirit of sacrifice. And this idea that we sacrifice ourselves for the country. And a lot of people who, in areas that were infected, for example, with environmental diseases, uh, places that are, for example, mining or very dirty smeltering industries and so forth, and lung diseases and, and so forth. Uh, we hear about cancer villages. A lot of these cancer villages uh, go back to that period and uh, people were expected to suck it up uh, Brendan barrett uh, and if you make a sacrifice for the revolution that's glorious and so uh, both a kind of a faith in where things were going at least until the cultural revolution and also a, the real danger and lack of tolerance of protest uh, both of the things put together of course what it may be is that we just don't know enough yet -hmm. And if we did enough oral histories in enough places, Mm -hmm. uh, then we might be able to find some.
0: Well, some people also talk about uh, uh, um, some kind of uh, mind shift, whereby you know, uh, only under certain conditions, there emerges something we could call environmental awareness, uh, so to speak. So, so in a way, we could say. The argument could be made that perhaps during the during the reform period, China's society has been going through some kind of process of environmentalization, you know, whereby the theme of uh, the environment and the environment as a trope becomes a uh, routine of everyday life, uh, and this can be seen, for example, in situations of conflict, yeah. right, uh, whereby formal conflict. I mean, whereby you know, people in one way or another get organized and, um, you know, formalize mechanisms of protest and in some cases petition. What are the current patterns of environmental protest in rural China?
1: Well, I think almost entirely in terms of protest, it's almost entirely spontaneous and it's almost entirely in reaction to Um, visible or palpable pollution of the air or water or soil, uh, and to disease outbreaks uh, of diseases that seem to be connected to uh, environmental pollution, whether it's air pollution or whether it's, um, for example, lung disease from working in the mines or from of chemical discharges which affect the water supply, either the agricultural or the household water supply. And they seem to be spontaneous Uh, protest. People get fed up uh, Mm -hmm. and they try all sorts of things. They try sending petitions uh, to the local government office. Every county office, every county in China has a petitions office and you can take petitions or you can show up at the door and even show up with a complaint. Uh, so a lot of local, uh, uh, just various spontaneous protests of, of that sort. But there's also more direct action. Uh, a factory uh, where uh, which had uh, polluted the water supply. Well, then people would block the factory. Folks that I knew blocked the bulldozers that were uh, taking away the taking away their important land and demanded compensation for it. So that's one aspect of the pattern. The other aspect of the pattern is that they almost always. Well, one, one more thing is that the, the regime seems to be tolerant of these protests as long as they stay local. Um, and uh, they're directed at specific grievances, whether they're medical or, or otherwise. Uh, the other pattern is that they're almost always settled by compensation. They're settled by monetary compensation. It's much more common for a villager to be awarded a certain amount of money in compensation for a, a pollution than it is to actually get the pollution stopped. Mm-hmm. so people are bought off and uh, local governments are very willing to buy people off because higher level governments uh, partly rate the performance of local officials on their ability to prevent disturbances and protests or to, to solve them uh, when they come about
0: Is society strong enough to circumvent state constraints? when it comes to environmental protest?
1: No. It's strong enough to gain some kinds of compensation, and it's sometimes strong enough to gain attention to the problem at hand. To stop the pollution is easier, of course, than actually cleaning cleaning up pollution that's already there. But I don't think it's strong enough to stop state policy. At the same time, of course, the state is being environmentalized, to use your word. Yeah. And this is something we can, we can talk about, too. So
0: could you tell us a little bit more about that? How is the state being environmentalized?
1: Well, they've given up the silly idea that, uh, you know, socialism doesn't pollute the environment. Mm-hmm. They know absolutely that they have got many very polluted uh, cities uh, in terms of the air uh, polluted rivers, lakes. Uh, many lakes are turning green with this blue green algae and it kind of looks like kind of green paint. If you go to Denshi, the uh, lake right next to the city of Kunming, uh, all around the shore areas is green. Um, I was there a couple summers ago. Uh, I haven't been to Lake Tai uh, recently, which is outside Wuxi, just uh, inland from Shanghai. But same thing. Uh, you see pictures. I remember visiting Lake Tai in eight, 1985 and it was full of, it was bright blue and it was full of these old fishing boats with the brown sails and they were catching stuff. And now it's just, uh, you know, one mass of, uh, of blue-green algae. Uh, and so that these things are obvious and they affect the legitimacy of the government. A lot of people are, are turning their just ordinary people, both rural people, directly affected by some of these, but urban people, they're also affected by fears of food security, fears of dirty water, and then air pollution that they're breathing. You, know, you see these pictures of people going around with these surgical masks. And uh, so the government realized gotta do something just in order to maintain its political legitimacy. But there's another thing, which is the government is, um, those people are actually concerned about the environment. Right? We don't want to look at them as, a, just because they're a communist party and they do a lot of things, we don't want to look at them as absolute cynics. right? Mm-hmm. They're not mm-hmm. only concerned with staying in power, they really do believe that they should be able to bring a bring a better life to people. Mm-hmm. And part of a better life is not to have to breathe the dirty air and eat c- pesticide-laced food and, and drink contaminated water. So...
0: And what um, kinds of institutional frameworks the government is setting up to kind of counter, reverse, perhaps attenuate the negative effects of environmental degradation?
1: Well, it's actually been gradually building since the 1990s. Uh, there have been environmental protection bureaus that are very, very small in a county, might have one or two people back in the 80s, but they're growing and growing. And the State Environmental Protection Administration unified uh, these things uh, in the late 1990s and in the and, uh, last uh, eight years, I think, it has been uh, elevated to a ministry status. So you have a ministry of the environment, which is co-equal with, with other ministries. Um, local officials are, are, every time, if you're a local bureaucrat of some sort, you're evaluated by your superiors and you have a set of conditions that you have to meet. Well, uh, recently, uh, environment has been included in that. And if you have environmental pollution, that's a check against your record. If you clean up an environmental problem that was there previously, then that's a positive mark. So there's incentive for local officials to, uh, to promote this. Uh, law is very important. Uh, China has a, 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 in terms of environmental codes, they're very strict. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a question of whether they're actually complied with, uh, you know, to what degree. But a lot of environmental lawyers, they look at Chinese code and they say, well, this is great, you know, this is is a great set of environmental regulations. (laughs) Does the the government,
0: the central government, I mean, tolerate environmental activists? Uh, Does it it encourage environmental, the work of environmental activists?
1: No. Um, The central government, as far as I can tell in China, um, is afraid of any kind of non-governmental organization. Now, of course, they're capitalist firms, but they're, you know, they are not only closely connected to bureaucrats, but they're often, those bureaucrats are often charged with corruption and and so Mm -hmm. forth. But I I don't think that the government has, has ever brought itself to the idea of being comfortable with the idea that they're autonomous, sort of civil society organizations above a very local level.
0: So our environmental, NGOs in China supervised by the government?
1: Yeah, and you know, the two kinds. I mean, mm-hmm. The local ones, and the local ones, uh, originally, they had to actually be connected with a government research institute. And so the first environmental NGO in China, which was established in the 90s, uh, was called Friends of the Earth. Uh, uh, yeah, Friends of Nature, sorry. Ziran, Ziyo. And uh, it was established as a branch of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, which is a government research, uh, Chinese Academy of Sciences, it's a government research, uh, uh, research institution. So this is a national scale NGO, yeah. Well, sort of. I mean, it's, uh, it's mostly a few people in Beijing. And, you know, there are other people, there's uh, active people in Kunming, for example, the, the Center for Biodiversity and Indigenous Knowledge in, in Kunming where they've done a lot of really important work uh, recording indigenous knowledge of uh, both Han farmers and also uh, minority peoples. And, uh, edu- but most of what they can do is educational. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Educational, um, and in fact, environmental education is required in Chinese primary and secondary schools. Mm-hmm. It's very rote. It's sort of, sort of memorizing things out of books, and there hasn't been much uh, practical uh, mm-hmm. application of this mm-hmm. but uh, one of the interesting things is that there are people who have established environmental schools um, in, in, in uh, Yunnan and another place in Beijing and my uh, my friend Robert Eifert has, has written about this that they take children and rather, instead of doing what they do in school which is they just memorize some environmental slogans or something out of books they take them out into nature for a day you know, let's collect plants. Let's collect bugs. That's us how the ecology works. Mm-hmm. And uh, urban middle-class uh, parents are more and more interested because they have their environmental worries, and they also want to do best for their children. So they're more and more interested in getting their children into environmental, various kinds of private environmental education. Mm-hmm. So education is probably the area in which uh, environmental NGOs have the have the biggest latitude.
0: Mm-hmm. What about local level organizations? Any environmental um, activism going on? At the, sure, I mean, I mean we talked about these protests, protests, beyond but, reactive.
1: But, but no, there, there are often people form, you know, uh, friends of such and such an environment, local. There was a, a famous um, uh, environmentalist around, again, Lake Tai, lake which, one of the lakes which is so uh, eutrophied, there's so much uh, green, blue-green algae. And uh, He formed an organization and it was quite effective, but then uh, the officials got nervous and they arrested him on some, maybe it was a trumped up charge, I'm not sure, or some law that was not ordinarily used because they were worried about building an alternative local base of, of, of political support. Mm-hmm. You
0: mentioned earlier that many urban folks are now also, I mean, obviously concerned with environment, it's a concern that is affecting the whole of the population across social strata, regions and so on. But quite often urban folks are um, stewards of environmental activism in the country. And is there evidence of new synergies being formed between rural and urban?
1: yeah I think there's a lot um, that and and it derives on one level from urban populations great getting more and more educated um, and but also there are great fears among urban populations in China about uh, food safety and food security and they're particularly concerned because agriculture uh, since the nineteen Well, starting in the 1970s, but particularly since the 1990s, agriculture depended more and more on the use of agricultural chemicals, well, fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides. And uh, so they don't want their children, in particular, to be eating this chemical-laced food. And so there's a growing movement toward organic agriculture. But the problem is that people are mistrustful of strangers in general so they go to the market and something's labeled organic that's just fake they're just labeling it organic you can go online you can go on Taobao and you can buy a, a you know set of 500 organic stickers for you know 30 quai and then you can go you know put those on your food so the organic certification system exists but people don't trust it well either this is a fake certification or uh, it actually came from the right environmental bureau, but they paid off the bureau in order to give them this environmental certification. And so there's been some direct connection between organic farmers and uh, urban middle-class people worried about food safety. Mm-hmm. And the organic farmers are, uh, one case that I know really well in, uh, in the area around the big city of Chengdu in western China is there, um, there's a group of farmers who decided that the direction that agriculture was going, becoming commercialized, uh, sort of went against their idea of a kind of connection to the earth. And uh, a lot of them were devout Buddhists. And so they started organic farming. They didn't bother to go get state certification. They uh, were Buddhists, they became vegetarians. And then they started inviting urban people to come out to their farm. Uh, and, if, and they started CSA, the Community Supported Agriculture, where you subscribe. And then every week they make deliveries and they bring you a basket of organic stuff. But very interestingly, they, you can't just sign up. You gotta go there and you gotta spend a day at the farm watching how they do it and you have a mm-hmm. vegetarian meal with them. Mm-hmm. And then you can sign up for this CSA. And that actually got hooked up with a local environmental Organization called Chengdu Urban Rivers Association, C U R A, cura in English, mm-hmm. and it was started by a coalition of local environmental activists and environmental studies scientists from Sichuan University and, and uh, Sichuan Agricultural University, and uh, they were what they were concerned was that the overuse of agricultural chemicals was polluting and degrading the urban water supply so they're trying to convince farmers to use fewer chemicals in order to clean up the the water supply of the city well this went together with this group of farmers who were promoting organic food for for religious reasons and ethical reasons and with the anxious middle-class urban consumers who wanted the food to be safe so there's a kind of synergy and, and in fact it works Yeah, you know you can get clean food this way. Yeah,
0: I think you know one of the most interesting things about what we've been calling environmentalization here of Chinese society is, is not just that you know you different kinds of people are brought together under, you know under the Mm. same banner. In this case, you know it's the issue of environment and so on. But also there's the global dimension, you know, and which I think is very important to talk about. And it's in my impression is that it's not so so often addressed in discussions about the current environmental crisis. China is expanding globally. Uh, it's not just about, I mean, the, the scope of development is no longer within national boundaries. It's a global project. And of course, uh, with this expansion, um, China is generating all kinds of environmental pro- problems in, in different parts of the world, Southeast Asia. Yeah. Uh, you know, Africa and so yeah, on. Yeah, Russia. Russia. Hmm? Is there awareness in China of this of these kinds of issues? Um, is there awareness that you know environmental activists in China are addressing the environmental uh, you know problems from a global uh, perspective and developing global connections in the process?
1: Well, I think that uh, that's that may be just beginning, but I, I don't think it's particularly well. Hooked up, uh, hooked together yet? By which I mean, uh, global environmental NGOs, particularly conservation NGOs, been active in China since the 1990s or even earlier. the The world World Wide Fund for Nature, used to be called World Wildlife Fund, uh, was of course they have the panda as their symbol, and and uh, they did a lot of environmental work together with environmental scientists in Sichuan on. Uh, preserving panda habitat and, uh, and breeding and, and uh, sort of endangered species work. And they have other, as so many of these world con- uh, environmental organizations have, have, these iconic animals, like the giant panda, the golden monkey, the Tibetan antelope, um, mm-hmm. and, and so forth uh, in China. Um, and uh, it's also the Nature Conservancy, uh, Conservation International have also been very active in working together with local officials and scientists to try to preserve habitat uh, for, uh, for various species that, that are uh, of worldwide interest. So that's, a, that's an important connection and of course the, the international NGOs in China what, what this does is it seems to um, because the Chinese regime And I think most of the populace of China is very concerned with being respected internationally. Mm -hmm. They still Mm -hmm. feel that Europeans, and particularly Americans, look down on them, and Japanese. And so, one of the things that when you read, what we started out this interview with, the idea that China's environmental crisis, and you know, the New York Times has all these things about, you know, you can't breathe the air, in in, uh, wherever it is, you can't breathe the air today. And uh, so, um, this is a way of China getting uh, international respect uh, for its efforts. The other way, of course, is by joining all these uh, various international forums. They began at the Rio um, Environmental Summit in 1992. And, uh, and they played a big part in the Paris, 2015 Paris uh, uh, Accords on, on stopping global warming. So the Chinese government still feels it doesn't have the respect uh, around the world in any way that it really ought to have. And one of the ways they can do this is by engaging in international cooperation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you come back to what you said about China exporting its environmental danger, I'm not personally familiar with a lot of the critique of this uh, within China, although certainly you see it outside. Mm -hmm. You know, the forests, uh, China's forest has increased. I talked about the level was only about 8 to 11 percent. Of the, of the country was forested in 1958. Now it's 21% mm-hmm. and there's a big reforestation effort. Well, one of the reasons they can do this is because they can import logs from Siberia. They can import uh, hardwoods from Southeast Asia, even from Africa, mm-hmm. even places like Gabon, uh, which is on the west coast of Africa. They're, they're getting hardwood, uh, hardwood logs from there. Mm-hmm. So um, they're, and, and they're also beginning to export some of their industrial p- pollution uh, to poorer countries, although I think it's still true that uh, wealthier countries are exporting more of industrial pollution to China mm-hmm. than China yeah. is, is exporting. But as it cleans up its environment, it will take a lot of its environmentally dirty activities, whether it's, you know, massive deforestation or whether it's uh, polluting industries, and they will do them elsewhere. Not to speak of the fact that they're looking for resources uh, all over the world. They're looking for oil, they're looking for for minerals. Uh, they're even looking for farmland. Uh, mm-hmm, and of mm-hmm. course they're importing enormous amounts of soybeans from Brazil and increasingly from Argentina uh, to feed their growing pig population as the Chinese diet contains more and more meat. So there are all there are all these problems. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not aware of the internal critiques, not to say it doesn't exist. I haven't got to that part of my book yet, so. <laughs>
0: Okay, Steve. I think we're running out of time, but I still have a question. I mean, it's sort of directly related to what we've been talking about, and you know, which is that there is like an increasing sense, I think, in the international community, I mean, especially within the, the the scientific community, that you know, environmental degradation is causing climate change in one way or another. I mean, even Donald Trump has admitted it Yeah. Uh, right. Recently, um, but. Uh, and, and this has led many of us to start talking about uh, a new geolo- geological age. I mean, the Anthropocene, yeah. right? the age of, of humans, which is meant to, you know, to refer to the fact that, you know, somehow humanity and its uh, uh, human activities in the yeah. last, uh, especially, I suppose, in the last 200 years of the Industrial Revolution has been significant enough to alter, um, you know, environmental, environmental processes. Yeah and accelerate degradation. So I suppose the question I want to ask is has the has the this paradigm shift of the anthropocene. I mean in some countries people are trying to uh to introduce the anthropocene in, in high school curriculum for example. Yeah. to kind of change the mindset of the younger generations. Uh, is there evidence that the paradigm shift involved in these discussions around the anthropocene, you know, is affecting China's studies. Uh, you know, are China studies people talking about the Anthropocene at all? Uh,
1: there's a few. Yeah, there's a few. And I, uh, I'm connected with a group that has held a couple of workshops. had one in Berlin. I had, had one in Beijing. I may be having one in Berkeley next year. If it's in Berkeley, I might even go close by. Uh, and um, to, to, to think about... Uh, this question in regard to the fact of the impact that uh, the impact that, that China's economic growth has had on the world environment. Both of course in terms of the exporting of uh, environmental neg- negativity as I talked about, but also in terms of their contribution to climate change which is now the greatest of any nation, although it's still only about half per capita, it's still only about half the contribution to climate change of the Of uh, North America, Uh, it was was a quarter, you know, ten years ago. So it's so it's it's growing, and ours is going down just a little bit. But um, so uh, I, I think that this is a beginning. I haven't seen it mainstream in Chinese studies. Uh-huh. I think as the people who live in China, uh, who are interested in this kind of thing and who are literate in, in, in Chinese and literate in Chinese culture are beginning to talk about this, uh, both locally and, and, and worldwide. But in terms of mainstream China studies, oh, they're interested, you know, but it's not, it's not a hot topic. It's not a hot topic like migration, which of course is connected. It's not a hot topic like women's rights. It's not a hot topic like ethnic repression. Uh, I I think it will be uh, within a few years Mm -hmm. uh, because more and more people are becoming aware of it. But mainly, you know, it's mainly uh, environmental historians who are talking about the past or it's natural scientists Uh, And there are a few environmental social scientists, a lot of people talking, a lot of people doing environmental policy and politics. Um, But it hasn't come together around the Anthropocene yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it will. I think it's coming soon.
0: Many thanks, Steve, for sharing your thoughts on the roots of China's current environmental challenges. I am sure that our listeners will appreciate the insights of your profound interdisciplinary reflections. Your research is quite unique in its capacity to bring together the findings of different fields of scholarship, including history, China studies, anthropology and environmental studies. Many thanks once again for sharing your ideas. You just listened to a TechnoViews podcast with Stephen Harrell, Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at the University of Washington.